You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Medical Imaging, a program discussing the latest innovations in clinical radiology and imaging technologies. This edition of Advances in Medical Imaging is sponsored by Siemens Ultrasound, the industry leader in tissue strain analytic applications. Siemens, answers for life. Your host is Dr. Jason Bernholtz, Director of Diagnostic Ultrasound Consultants in Oak Brook, Illinois. Uterine fibroids are the most common neoplasms, developing in some 2 out of 10 premenopausal women. They are three times more likely to affect African-American women. Uterine artery embolization is a well-established, minimally invasive form of treatment. You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Advances in Medical Imaging. I'm Dr. Jason Bernholtz, your host, and with me today is Dr. James Spees, who is Professor of Radiology at Georgetown University and Chairman of the Department of Radiology at Georgetown University Medical Center. Dr. Spees is a world authority on uterine artery embolization. He's authored a large number of papers on the subject, and he's been instrumental in forming an international registry on uterine artery embolization cases so that the procedure can be evaluated in a formal context of evidence-based medicine. Today we're discussing uterine artery embolization for fibroids. Hello, Jim. Welcome to ReachMD. Well, thanks, Jason, for having me. Well, I wonder if you might tell us something about fibroids and maybe speculate a little bit about why these are so much more prevalent in African-American women. Well, I appreciate the opportunity first to be able to speak about this subject. It is a very common problem. And in fact, if one looks at even pathologic studies, the prevalence of this condition is even much higher than you stated. Up to 70 to 80% of women will at least have the presence of fibroids within the uterus. Now, the majority of those don't need treatment, but it is a very, very common condition. And as you indicated, African-Americans are disproportionately affected. There are a number of different theories about fibroid development. They are a monoclonal mutation that occurs, but in a given woman, each fibroid might have a different mutation, and so it certainly isn't one uniform condition. Their growth is affected by steroid hormones, progesterone, estrogen, uh, and a variety of different growth factors, and the pathways of that are very complicated. But there are some epidemiologic associations that are quite interesting. Number one, they probably have a greater prevalence in women that are obese, There has been an epidemiologic association with hypertension, uh, which may be disproportionate in the African-American community. But there's some genetic components that are likely at play. There definitely are familial tendencies for fibroids, particularly in the African-American community. Some recent research from the NIH is interesting in that they've looked at the genes that are associated with keloid formation and exuberant scarring, and they appear to be upregulated in many patients with uh, fibroids. So One thought about these is that these are really, in part, a reparative process related to some injury. And one could speculate whether there's some vascular injury associated with hypertension or other potential causes, and that this is really related to the body's attempt to try to repair those. This is particularly true in large fibroids, which, again, African Americans are disproportionately affected by. Well, fibroids, I mean, not only so common, but they're very easily diagnosed. So that I guess over the years, everything imaginable has been blamed on fibroids. How do you decide which fibroids to treat, which patients to treat? It is difficult because almost all women have some gynecologic symptoms at baseline. There's bloating, premenstrual discomfort, cramping are common in normal parts of a normal menstrual cycle. Fibroids typically, and probably the most common symptom they cause, is increasing menstrual bleeding. And most women have to be their own judge. In other words, a woman can say that, well, my periods are heavier and longer than they were a year or two or three years ago. And that's a symptom that's commonly associated with fibroids. 
Fibroids that are associated with heavy menstrual bleeding typically are deep within the uterus and deviate the endometrial cavity, and they're either intracavitary or in the deep myometrium causing distortion. And in fact, most experts in this field would agree that if the fibroids are not deep in the uterus and they're really the, the endometrial cavity is essentially unaffected by the fibroids in terms of its configuration, then there usually is not heavy menstrual bleeding. Or if there's heavy menstrual bleeding, you have to think of a different cause, either a systemic issue like, uh, say, von Willebrand's or possibly polyps or other causes. So generally, the size and location of the fibroids is key in looking at a woman and saying, well, those symptoms that she's experienced of heavy bleeding could and probably are affected by this, but it's difficult to be certain, of course. Pelvic pain and pressure is even a little bit more difficult because fibroids often are coincident with other conditions. You can have adenomyosis in the uterus. There can be endometriosis, which is the most common cause of pelvic pain in women that, you know, based on a pathologic process. And those can be difficult to see on imaging studies. So what we tend to do with the pain issue is we look for patients that have menstrual or perimenstrual pain, which is typical of fibroids. We also look for pain in a location where a fibroid's present. So if a patient's got fibroids on the left and she's having persisting left-sided pelvic pain, one can make a reasonable assumption in the absence of other obvious pathology that the fibroids are the cause. But it is a little bit of a guessing game in some patients, and there are a few patients that we say, well, you've got fibroids, they could or maybe or probably are the cause, but we just can't be certain. Okay, well, let's say you have a patient, you've decided this woman is exactly right for embolization. Could you walk us through a procedure and tell us what you do? Well, this is usually done as an overnight stay in the hospital, what we would call a 23-hour admission. There are a number of centers around the country that are doing this as a same-day procedure, doing it in the morning and discharging the patient in the evening. A little more conservative approach is to keep the patient overnight afterwards. So the patient is usually admitted in the morning of the procedure and is prepared by intravenous line in which intravenous sedation is provided, and it's the typical that you'd get for most sedation procedures, a combination of fentanyl and Versed. A Foley catheter is placed. One or both of the femoral arteries is prepared for an angiographic procedure, and this is, in essence, a pure angiographic procedure. So a femoral puncture is performed. A catheter is then manipulated using fluoroscopic guidance across the aortic bifurcation into the opposite hypogastric or internal iliac artery. From there, uh, digital road mapping, which is an angiographic technique that allows us to see the vessels as we're working in them, is used to guide a microcatheter that is advanced into the uterine artery. And once one has been trained in this area, it actually usually is a fairly straightforward process. It can be tricky, but in general, we succeed in, in nearly all cases. Once we're in place, we confirm the position with an angiographic set of images, and then we begin embolizing. And embolization, from an angiographic perspective, is putting in usually an inert substance that will block the arteries. And most commonly, a round or a spherical embolic is used, although there are a couple different products that are available. And that's injected until the fibroid branches occlude. Now, the beauty of this is that fibroids have very large blood vessels with high flow, and the normal myometrium has tiny vessels with very low flow unless the patient is pregnant. So there's preferential flow to the fibroids when this embolization has begun. And fibroids have isolated blood supply, which means that the vessels that go to them go only to the fibroid, and they don't go to the adjacent myometrium. So if you plug those branches up, that fibroid is going to infarct, and they're actually fairly sensitive to ischemia. And what we try to do is block those branches until they're blocked, but the normal myometrial branches are spared to the extent we can, and we leave the uterine artery open with slow, sluggish flow, typically. One side is done, then the other side is done. Once that's completed, the catheters are removed, and the 
patient is usually transferred to a recovery area or an overnight stay unit. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Advances in Medical Imaging from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Jason Bernholtz, and I'm speaking with Dr. James Spees of Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and we are discussing uterine artery embolization for fibroids. Well, Jim, let me just ask you something. Do you inject any old suspension of microspheres? Well, it's an interesting topic you bring up because there are new devices coming along each day, and one of the areas of discussion in our field is what level of evidence would we like to have before we use new embolics. Currently, there are two embolics that have been proven to be effective. One is called embospheres, which is a spherical agent, and then there's another one called particle PVA, which is probably the oldest permanent embolic that's been used in interventional radiology. It's been used for about 30 years. There are newer products that are undergoing evaluation. Some are already FDA-approved, but I like to stay with the evidence base, as you indicated earlier. I think that we have randomized trials that have demonstrated these two products that I mentioned as being effective, and so I think those are the two accepted standards at this stage. Well, I mean, my question was a little bit facetious because what I wanted to uh, sort of have you emphasize, which you did very well, is that the procedure is what it is because interventional radiologists like you have gone over and optimized every single step in the procedure, including the diameters of the particles that you use for embolization and selecting catheters, et cetera, so that it's something that has been very thoroughly optimized over many years of experience. It is amazing. There's a very large community of researchers in this area, In part, I think that this is a wonderful group of patients to work with. Many people became interested in this procedure, but there's probably a few dozen major investigators around the world, and there are some very strong studies that have been done in Europe that have looked at this very closely. We now have level one evidence, a paper published in the New England Journal a few years ago, another gynecology journal, which clearly show that this procedure in terms of symptom control is comparable to surgical alternatives. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, for example, this few months back, I think it was in August of 2008, put out a practice bulletin in which they agreed that there was level one evidence indicating that this is a safe and effective therapy for fibroids. It doesn't mean that it's ideal for every patient, and there's obviously a lot of research we need to do in some of the subgroups that we have, but for the average woman, mid-40s, typical fibroid patient, most of these women are going to be good candidates for embolization. Well, what has your registry shown about, I mean, what are some precise figures, or how would you compare more exactly embolization and surgery? There's a couple of things. First, the fibroid registry, which is actually almost a unique collaboration between industry, the Society of Interventional Radiology Foundation, the FDA, and actually got some funding from the Agency for Health Research and Quality, was a large prospective cohort study looking at outcomes from this procedure. At baseline, we enrolled and completed initial follow-up in 2,700 patients. It was in 72 sites, mostly in the United States, but there were international sites as well. And the outcome measures used there, the short-term measures were related to safety. And sort of in summary, the major complication rate for this procedure is less than 5%, and the registry showed that it was between 3 and 4%. And those are complications that require a hospitalization longer than 48 hours. Most of those weren't truly major. And in that group of patients, 2,700 patients, only eight women required a hysterectomy within the first 30 days thereafter. But there are potential risks associated with it, and we were able to get a lot of information from the study. For example, I think there was one pulmonary embolus in that group of patients, and we do know that that is a potential risk in this or any medical procedure. There are other things that can occur with related to infection, et cetera. But they're all quite rare. The second major measure was health-related quality of life and symptom control. 
And what we saw in that registry, and we've seen in a number of other clinical trials, is that the level of symptoms that women have associated with fibroids are diminished to more or less equivalent with a normal woman. Now, I indicated earlier that most women have gynecologic symptoms, and we, with the help of the SIR Foundation, helped develop a validated measure for symptoms and quality of life related to uh, uterine fibroids. And after this treatment, it goes down to the range of normal, and that's been demonstrated actually in a number of studies now. That compared to the randomized data from Europe, there's one study in, from the Netherlands looking at embolization compared to hysterectomy, showed a similar outcome. In terms of, for the women that were improved, the level of improvement was similar. The downside when you want comparisons to hysterectomy is that there's a chance of failure. Roughly 90% of women are going to have their symptoms improved if they're properly selected with a uterine embolization, but that means about 10% won't. And many of those women do go on to a hysterectomy. So that's the first thing, is that when we look at hysterectomy rate during the course of the first year, that really relates primarily to a procedure that failed to improve the patient. The second question is recurrence. Anything that leaves the uterus in place will result potentially in new fibroids down the road, particularly if the patient's younger. So if a patient's treated in their 30s, I could almost bet that they might have a problem with fibroids in their later 40s. And that's the same with myomectomy or endometrial ablation or any of the other therapies that are currently used for fibroids. So we looked at the five-year outcome here in a group of 200 patients at Georgetown, and 80% of women had their symptoms continue to be controlled by five years afterwards, but 20% needed to undergo additional therapies, some of which were hysterectomies. None of those were really related to complications. They were more levels of symptoms that recurred, and the patient chose to go on and have additional treatment. There was a recent study looking at myomectomy in a cohort of patients from an HMO, and the repeat intervention rate, and that was about 23%. So it was very similar to what one would expect to see with embolization. Hysterectomy, though, obviously there is no recurrence, and so therefore it has that advantage over the long term. The problem with hysterectomy is that it's an irreversible procedure, and if a patient has a poor outcome, there's no going back. Many, many women do not want to lose their uterus, and so really this is for the woman who chooses to try to retain her uterus, and we can do that in almost all patients. Thanks to Dr. James Spees of Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C., who has been our guest. We've been discussing the rationale and benefits of uterine artery embolization for fibroids. I'm Dr. Jason Bernholtz. You've been listening to Advances in Medical Imaging from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Advances in Medical Imaging, sponsored by Siemens Ultrasound. For more details on this week's show or to download the segment, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.